T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. The Bay Area is a region defined by its diversity, and yet many neighborhoods seem to actually be growing more segregated with time. That the troubling finding of a new report out this past week. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Benconi, and today on the program, we're going to dig into that report put out by researchers at UC Berkeley and try to find out how it could be that 50 years after the passage of the Federal Fair Housing Act, The trend towards segregation still continues. We'll be looking at the forces behind this trend, and then a bit later in the program, we'll also consider the growing movement here in the Bay Area to push back. The pressure on the elected leaders will start to grow in coming months. First up, we're going to welcome on now the report's lead author, Stephen Menendian, who serves as the assistant director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute. Stephen Menendian, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So again, that headline finding, uh, your report found that a large majority of metropolitan regions throughout the country have become more racially segregated over the past three decades. And uh, once again, that includes the Bay Area. So let's get a fuller picture What has this change looked like on the ground here in the Bay Area? Well, seven of the nine counties in the Bay Area are more segregated today, not only than they were in 1990, but actually than they were in 1970. Part of that has been driven by a very large influx uh, since the mid-1960s of Asians, South Asians in particular, post-1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act, and also just the explosive growth, similarly, of uh, Hispanic non-whites. And so formerly homogeneous neighborhoods, you know, formerly all white or predominantly black neighborhoods have become diversified in many places across the Bay Area. Uh, But there still remain sort of these intensely divergent and distinctive racially concentrated areas. So you can go into a number of neighborhoods across the Bay Area and identify them. This is a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. This is a predominantly black neighborhood or heavily black neighborhood. And in particular, kind of the hard edge of segregation in the Bay are, is this ring um, in, in Marin, it's, it's more of a C than a ring of 
of sort of affluent, heavily white neighborhoods and suburbs. So for example, in you know, places like Lafayette, you, in, in a county that's 40% white, you have a, a city that's, that's 80, 85% white or 70 or 60, 67% white in other cases. So um, there is a lot of segregation. It just looks a little different than it did in the 1950s and 60s. Because this is self-sorting or, or economic market sorting to a large extent? Well, because the this isn't a pattern of sort of black cities and, and white suburbs anymore, right? It's a regional pattern in which you have, um, you know, uh, neighborhoods within cities that are racially identifiable, but they're not in, they're not homogeneous, right? So it's not like you have uh, many neighborhoods in the Bay Area, although there are some neighborhoods that are, say, 95% black. It's mostly that you have a neighborhood that's, say, 50, 50% black in a context, a, a county or a city that maybe is 8% black. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let's look a little bit closer at what is driving all this, because I think uh, for a lot of people, this news would come as a, a little bit of a surprise. You know, we in 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act. Since then, there's been numerous efforts to uh, push back segregation in the United States. And I think a lot of residents here in the Bay Area think of themselves as fairly progressively minded voters and uh, that this region itself uh, encapsulates those progressive values, which obviously uh, abhor uh, uh, residential segregation. So why are those values, why have those laws that have been passed not been enough to push back on this tide of segregation? Well, the first reason is because, so the the, 19, the, the Federal Fair Housing Act of 1968, also known as Title VIII, came into effect in 1970, which was in many cases just too late in the day to really disestablish or disrupt or disintermediate the patterns of re racial residential segregation that were built, you know, in the preceding 70 years of the 20th century. Um, and so it's, it came very late in the day, right? It wasn't like in the context of voting rights, right? You could flip a switch, literally enact a law and change and allow African-Americans to vote. But there was no mechanism. You couldn't pass a law in 1965, the Voting Rights Act, that went back in time right and allowed and redid those past elections that's essentially what the fair housing act was like um in, in terms of its limitations the other more significant thing about the fair housing act is that it was primarily a tort statute so let me just simplify it what it means is that the federal fair housing act was an anti-discrimination law anti-discrimination is not the same thing as integration or proactively integrating so think about brown versus board of education brown versus board of education and its progeny uh, in federal courts didn't simply say, okay, um, we're going to repeal or strike off the books uh, these state statutes mandating pupil assignment on the basis of race, and then just let parents send their kids wherever they want. That's not what happened. Instead, what happened was federal courts put school districts under a court order, a court mandate to proactively integrate Right. So they that's why you get busing is you get kids who are actually sent to different schools to proactively integrate. There has never been a, a serious, robust, comprehensive, proactive integration agenda for housing in the United States. Instead, what you have are laws that prohibit discrimination based upon the assumption that if we simply stop discrimination in the housing market, we'll get integration. Well, that assumption is a fallacy. That assumption was not true in the education context, and it certainly wasn't true in the housing context. So 
I don't know exactly what you mean when you say we've tried all these different efforts. I would say we haven't actually tried very much. What we've done is we've prohibited discrimination, but we've not actually proactively pursued an agenda of integration for housing. I'm going to reintroduce you real quick. We've been speaking so far with uh, Stephen Menendian. Once again, he serves as the assistant director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and we'll get into a little bit more about some of those market uh, dynamics that have been leading to the sorting that you're describing in your paper there. But let's first get into the consequences, why it is that segregation is something that uh, really is concerning and, and leading to some uh, pretty negative outcomes in a lot of different people's lives. You document in your survey of the metropolitan makeups uh, of you know areas around the country that this is something, segregation, that is uh, leading to bad outcomes in wealth, health, and educational attainment for many, many people. So lay that out for us. How is that unfolding? Well, basically, if you compare integrated neighborhoods with highly segregated white communities and highly segregated communities of color, there are distinctive economic and other life outcome disparities. So for example, we found that median household income in highly segregated white neighborhoods is double that of, almost double that of in highly segregated communities of color. The level of poverty is three times greater in highly segregated communities of color than in highly segregated white neighborhoods, and 7% higher than in integrated neighborhoods in, in absolute terms life expectancy differences. There's just a series of differences and disparities. And the reason is because racial residential segregation undergirds every other expression of systemic racism. So whether you're looking at education, whether you're looking at economic outcomes, whether you're looking at um, or income and wealth, as you alluded, or, or health and criminal justice and policing, where are police most aggressive in their you know, their tactics, the broken window philosophy or stop and frisk, where are people of color most likely to be profiled? They're in certain types of communities, right? Especially men and boys of color are more likely to be stopped and harassed in highly segregated communities of color. Um, health outcomes, you're looking at the COVID pandemic, there's stark relationship between segregation and those outcomes. Um, it's just, you go down the line. And the reason is because where people live, the environment that they inhabit, shapes so much of their lives. It determines where you go to school, the health and well-being of your environment, whether you have access to health and safe drinking water, whether you're exposed to PM 2.5s, which are particulate, uh, particulate matter, whether you have infrastructure and sidewalks, you know, whether you're access to jobs and transit. Where you live basically determines everything, how close you are to a job, where your kids go to school, and so it really is the core, it's the linchpin of systemic raci racism in the United States. And in the writing that you and your team have put out about this, you, you frame this as a, a resource issue in neighborhoods that have predominantly exactly. white residents have more of a say over the resources that are directed by municipalities. How does that dynamic play out and why is it so consequential? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that actually is the, the hidden underbelly of, of this. Really, what is driving most of these outcomes is resource disparities between these kinds of neighborhoods. And there's two forms of it. There's the private resource disparity and there's the public resource disparity. So um, the public resource disparity is essentially the tax base capacity 
or the, the fiscal instability of many of these communities or municipalities of color. And we've seen this in the Bay Area, right? After the last recession, the last great recession, I should say, not the pandemic-induced brief recession, um, but after the last great recession, we saw a number of municipalities about three or four years later around the Bay Area go bankrupt or on the verge of fiscal insolvency, right? Places like Vallejo and Stockton and so forth. Um, these are places, communities of color are places that have overall less tax-based capacity, meaning that they have less wealth to be taxed and revenue to be taken out to fund public goods and infrastructure. Um, and the extreme version of this is a place like Flint, right? Flint, Michigan, where not only can they not afford basic services, um, but they're put under a state receivership such that uh, as a cost-saving mechanism, uh, the city and the, and the state government essentially poisoned the, the community with uh, lead in the water. Um, so uh, the, 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 the public side of it is really fierce, but the private side is just as important. And so what you have in white segregated communities is the concatenation of public and private resources. You have a strong tax base, you have great uh, investments in public goods. And then on the flip side of it, on the private side, is you have lots of private wealth. And so if you have communities that have lots of private wealth in these white exclusionary areas, they can raise money they, uh, local businesses can do sponsorships, families can raise money for extracurricular activities, for PTAs, for arts and robotics, um, you know, all sorts of amenities that communities of color lack. And so these disparities, the cumulative aspect uh, uh, the cumulative effect of these public and private resource disparities, that's the heart of structural racism. That shapes your life outcomes. It shapes the opportunities that children have, the environments they inhabit, and then ultimately their life trajectories. Stephen Menendian with UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute. Uh, so let's now actually get into some of the forces driving all this. And uh, here, a lot of the story seems to have to do with uh, housing policy and the housing market. Uh, for example, you and your colleagues have identified single-family zoning as one of the key mechanisms driving segregation here in the Bay Area. Uh, essentially, the thinking goes that one home on one parcel of land is, of course, going to be more expensive than uh, denser forms of housing that we might build on that same piece of land. And uh, that extra cost barrier is keeping low-income people of color out. So uh, expand on that a little bit, if you could. How is this dynamic playing out? Well, I, I talked about sort of how anti-discrimination ordinances are not sufficient to integrate. But there are, after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, municipalities began to enact a, a series of ra facially race-neutral land use control mechanisms that have the effect of perpetuating and sustaining racial residential segregation. So as I said, sort of the hard edge of this is the exclusionary forces that exist in predominantly white communities, communities around the Bay and, in, and across the country. And the main tools in the kind of toolbox are these municipal land use controls. So they include zoning, exclusionary zoning, restrictive zoning, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the main version of that is single family only zoning. But there's other expressions of it. So there's also, for example, floor area ratios that require certain building size and construction uh, features. There are parking minimums. There are lot size minimums that require uh, homes or housing units be a certain size. Um, and then there's neighborhood preservation ordinances, which ostensibly were designed in, in the early 1970s and spread out of Berkeley and then all across the state to um, maintain neighborhood character, but often have the effect of making it just much more difficult to build affordable housing, multifamily developments, dense housing, which is the sine qua non of, of affordability um, in the market. 
So all of these mechanisms uh, make it very difficult to build affordable housing, which would create the possibility of, of greater diversity. Now, just again, I want to be clear, this isn't necessarily the case that these municipalities are intentionally trying to segregate. It's that their self-interested behavior, their fiscal maximization efforts, their abilities, their attempts to maximize the, their property tax base and the, the value of homes in their neighborhoods is actually having this perverse effect in perpetuating and maintaining segregation. So if the exclusionary effect in a lot of ways boils down to unaffordability, a couple of other issues that you raised there a second ago, is it fair to say that the Bay Area's housing crisis is inextricably linked with its segregation crisis? And uh, we should be thinking of those, uh, both of those together when we're trying to address one or the other? Absolutely. I think too often when we think about the housing crisis, we think of it in the narrower terms of economics. But the truth of the matter is that um, that the racial disparities are often much worse than the economic disparities. And without a deliberate focus on racial integration, it doesn't matter how much affordable housing you, you build, you're not actually going to have integrated housing. All right. A really important perspective on a lot of unfolding debates here in the Bay Area. That has been Stephen Menendi. And once again, he serves as the assistant director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, just released a, a major report on increasing segregation in the Bay Area. Stephen Menendi, thanks so much. Thank you. You are listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. So far on the program, we've been considering some of the forces that have been pushing the Bay Area to become more racially segregated in recent decades. It is a complex picture, but as we just heard in our last conversation, the practice of single-family zoning is believed by many to have played a central role. And it's coming under increasing scrutiny. In fact, a number of Bay Area cities are now taking steps to end the practice and open up more residential neighborhoods to small apartments. Of course, though, here in the Bay Area, for every movement, there is a counter-movement, and it's already turning out to be something of a messy process. So to tell us more about it, we're going to welcome on now to the program Mercury News housing reporter Lewis Hansen, who's been covering the issue for his paper. Uh, welcome to the program, Lewis Hansen. Hi, Keith. Glad to be here. So starting things off, if you could uh, give us a little bit of a lay of the land. Uh, the Bay Area is certainly not the first region to consider getting rid of exclusionary uh, zoning, but we have seen a number of uh, cities take significant steps here since the beginning of the year. Yeah, Keith, it's really building on a movement that started in Minnesota in 2018 in Minneapolis. Uh, the city banned single-family zoning and really allowed for small apartment buildings to be um, to come back to residential neighborhoods after being banned for so many years. Um, that idea is uh, popular with a lot of planners as a way to increase density, lower housing costs, um, and break down some of the those restrictive zoning rules that excluded uh, members or uh, uh, communities of color from many neighborhoods across the country. Uh, that had spread to Oregon uh, and Portland. Uh, and recently in the past year, several Bay Area cities have started to take up that issue. We've seen Berkeley uh, consider it. Uh, we've seen San Jose seriously consider it. Oakland is also looking at it among Bay other Bay Area cities. Um, Berkeley is probably the furthest along. Uh, their city council voted in March to uh, begin studying the plan to eliminate some single family zoning. 
throughout the city. Um, there's some irony to that because Berkeley is seen as the founder of zoning laws. Um, in 1916, city leaders decided that they wanted to keep white homeowners away from um, communities of color and apartment complexes. So they came up with uh, single family zoning. Uh, and from then on, it spread throughout the country. So now the Bay Area is looking at this um, in several cities, and we'll expect this to play out at least over the next couple of years. Lewis Hansen, once again, with the Mercury News. Uh, yeah, and so to get a sense of how this debate might play out, uh, I wanted to circle back to that March city council vote in Berkeley uh, on single-family zoning and bring in some of the voices from that meeting. So we need a plan for 9,000 additional units in the city of Berkeley. The question is where? From the outset, city leaders explicitly framed the vote as an attempt to confront Berkeley's own history with single-family zoning that we mentioned a second ago. And while Berkeley is the first at many things, I'm not proud that we were one of the first cities to adopt exclusionary zoning. Berkeley Mayor Jesse Aragin. We have to recognize the history of our city, and we have to commit ourselves to try to correct our past mistakes and to create a future that is truly equitable and inclusive. And a strong majority of the residents who spoke up during the public comment section agreed with the mayor. I'm really excited to have you take up this resolution. Exclusionary zoning is a stain on our city's history. It's a really great idea. Uh, Berkeley has the opportunity to be a model for a lot of other Bay Area cities. And it's but many were concerned as well. In particular, some residents fear that loosening up the market would simply free developers to buy up land and actually build more expensive housing. I'm very concerned that without uh, careful planning, that this upzoning will actually force more low-income people out of Berkeley. Then, of course, there are those who oppose these zoning measures because of the feared impacts of increased density on existing neighborhoods. That concept of having one neighbor on each side could potentially go away. Uh, taking a step back from Berkeley now, this debate has also been playing out in San Jose. And one city leader who's been speaking up about these density concerns quite vocally in recent months uh, would be former San Jose City Councilman Per Luigi Oliverio. Here he is speaking against zoning reform proposals in San Jose. And it eliminates your choice of living in a single-family home neighborhood because ultimately it opens up to any of your neighbor's property being sold and something else built that wasn't allowed before when you originally bought there. Speaking there during a recent meeting of the San Jose District 1 leadership group, uh, among the concerns he raised, congestion. Uh, so if you've already encountered one neighbor or a friend of yours that has a neighbor that has way too many cars, you know how that can disrupt the nature of the street and the neighborhood. By having this many units, it increases that percentage of likelihood that the same thing will happen even more. All right. So taking that all together, Lewis Hansen, uh, certainly we're getting a picture of a lot of enthusiasm for this change, but uh, also a lot of pushback, too. Uh, so I suppose the question that I want to put to you is, is the opposition to this zoning reform uh, growing more organized? I think the organizations are against Single-family zoning reform uh, have really been taking shape. There's several statewide slow growth groups that are uh, trying to tap the brakes on zoning reform and denser development in residential communities. Um, and those 
statewide groups uh, are really fueled by a lot of grassroots groups. So you're seeing groups like Livable California fighting statewide efforts to ask cities to upzone much of their uh, much of their residential land, um, and you're seeing grassroots organizations uh, that are going to their city councils and planning commissions and saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't want the character of our neighborhood to change. We don't want investors to come into our neighborhoods, buy a single family house and put up uh, an apartment complex with four or maybe as, as many as six units. Um, now, these proposals uh, are still in the early stages and even Berkeley uh, will take probably longer than a year before uh, any concrete plans would come up. Um, San Jose is also considering this and it's been quite a contentious issue. There have been a quick organization of groups opposing this reform of single family zoning. They're putting door hangers out. Um, they are uh, warning their neighbors that this could change uh, everything that they love about their neighborhoods. But on the other hand, there are also you know, organizations like California Yimby and uh, Silicon Valley at Home that are advocating for more housing. And they recently did a poll in San Jose and found that a majority of the residents polled supported changing these zoning requirements and allowing more duplexes, triplexes, uh, and fourplexes into their neighborhoods. So it's really a debate that's starting to form now. And again, any of these changes will have to go through many public hearings. They're going to have to go through many votes. So the pressure on the elected leaders will start to grow, I think, in, in, in coming months. And often in local elections, the most salient issues are local development. And so this is really a hotbed, a uh, hot button issue to change the way uh, a city develops itself, be it in San Jose, be it in Berkeley, be it in Oakland in the future, or other suburban areas. Just want to remind listeners real quick that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Right now we're speaking with Mercury News housing reporter Lewis Hansen, trying to get a lay of the land as the debate over single-family zoning plays out in the Bay Area, takes shape over the next year. And I, I think that the housing issue, and you just kind of alluded to this a moment ago, is uh, an interesting one because when you do go to these local council meetings, these are the sorts of issues that turn a lot of people out. If something is changing close to my home, uh, I'm going to be at that council meeting because it, it affects me. It affects my uh, my property values. So there is more issue, uh, more interest in these conversations than many other issues that go before city councils. And I think for a long time, that's been why the the Yimbies, the uh, pro housing folks have uh, felt it necessary to get uh, so organized because they need to, in their view, uh, counter some of that just natural force uh, that is uh, against change in a lot of these cities. Do, do you have any sense, and you, you just mentioned some uh, polling there a second ago, but do, do you have any sense of how this dynamic is changing this year, um, given that, you know, when we see in, in the case of Berkeley that there are a lot more, um, th this feeling that something has to change in these neighborhoods is much more widespread than it used to be, uh, even among homeowners? 
Yeah, absolutely, Keith. I think the one thing that uh, slow growth and pro growth people can uh, appreciate and agree on is that housing is really expensive in the Bay Area, almost wherever you go. And it's how to attack that housing shortage and those high housing prices um, that creates the conflict. You know, local officials have another pressure. Um, the state is coming out with new guidelines as to how much building um, that cities and counties are going to have to um, have to zone for uh, to meet uh, much more aggressive targets for development. Um, in the Bay Area, um, they have these, well, in the state, they have eight-year RENA cycles, eight-year development and planning cycles, uh, and the regions are assigned numbers to allow for growth, the appropriate amount of growth. Um, the Bay Area fell far behind in affordable housing and most housing in the last eight-year cycle. The new goals uh, are, are more than double um, the past goals for, for development. And um, cities are going to have to step up and say, okay, we need to open up more land to uh, residential development, either in a, in a more dense way to reach these, uh, these, these goals, or, or opening up lands that hadn't previously been available for, uh, for residential development. So there's pressure from the state on the cities to develop more housing. And we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. A lot of questions hanging in the air there. Uh, real quick, in closing, uh, as you mentioned at the top, uh, there are a number of other cities uh, elsewhere that got in on the single-family zoning game uh, even earlier than the Bay Area, and uh, they have a couple of years of experience with it now. We are kind of had a chance to see how it's been going there. Uh, I know that this is something you've, you've covered a little bit in your reporting. What is the picture looking like so far? It's interesting. There's a lot of fear among slow growth people that this will turn neighborhoods into, you know, simple investment properties for big developers. In Minneapolis, only a handful of applications have come through to change lots into multiplexes. So the change hasn't really been dramatic. And really, it's not a change that's going to come from the government. It's going to come from the market. It's going to be what the property owners decide to do with their property and what developers think that they can do with a property. And that's really what's going to uh, allow it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a way, it's almost a fact that could cut uh, either way in this argument. Uh, well, we are going to have to cut it out there. Obviously, we are going to see a lot more to come on this debate in the months going forward. But uh, for now, we've been speaking to Mercury News housing reporter Lewis Hansen. Lewis Hansen, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.